0: We're gonna, we're gonna look at the numbers passage first. We learned last week that numbers in Hebrew is called Bamidbar, which literally means what? In the wilderness. In the wilderness. And why was it called that? Because it happened in the wilderness. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, I have a question for you. How would you like to have a parasha, like a passage of scripture, named after you? Wouldn't that be special? wow, you would have to be a very holy person to have a passage of the Torah named after you, hey? Just like Korah. Did you notice that this passage is named after Korah? This passage is named Parshat Korach. Only, it wasn't because he was such a good guy. He went down, quite literally, in the annals of history, in infamy. And the earth ate him up and all of his possessions. Have any of you ever heard of the Acts 29 concept? You know that the book of Acts ends in chapter 28. right? The Acts 29 concept is that the story doesn't end in Acts chapter 28. Messiah is still alive, sitting at his Father's right hand. We as his disciples still have a mission. God is still backing us and empowering us to do the works of the kingdom. It's still an adventure to follow the rabbi to follow our savior yeshua that's the acts 29 concept the the the, uh, the concept is you are part of this uh, this story in this book it continues on it's like we live in acts 29 and then of course we're going to see the end of the book revelation chapters 19 and on and some of those other chapters in the future so this is like this is the uh I don't know. If you were into dispensationalism, you wouldn't call this the church age. You'd call it the Acts 29 age. That's what I would call it. Well, he had the Torah already. Moshe had written down a fair bit of it. And he had like, he had a lot of that supernatural phenomena right in his face. If anyone should have gotten it, it should have been Korah. And we're gonna look at that a little bit, a little bit into this actually. But I wanna, I wanna set the context for the main thing that we're gonna be talking about. And it's from, uh, Yeshua's teachings in the book of John. We read for the last couple of weeks, uh, where Yeshua is having these dialogues uh, quite often with his opponents, and in between he's healing people who really need him, and taking care of the common people. And uh, in John chapter 7 verse 24, he says something interesting. He says, Don't judge according to appearances. Judge a right judgment. And I never understood that, to be honest. Like when I think of judgment, I think of adjudication, you know, like you go to court and you have your case settled, etc. Uh, that's not something I do. I'm not a judge. That's not my profession. Um, but when you look at the, the Greek word for this, it's krino. Can everybody say krino? krino? And it's a word that you do every day. When you have to make a decision between one thing or another, you're judging. Uh, when you have to distinguish between two things. When you're pull, when you driving down the road and you see a traffic light, if the traffic light is red, then you make a judgment call and you stop. Correct? Hopefully. Um, if it's green, then you make a judgment call and you go. Uh, that's the concept of judgment. So it has nothing to do with judgmentalism or uh, the scenario that happens in a court. Alright? So this is something that applies to each one of us. Yeshua is saying, when you analyze a situation, when you make a decision... Don't do it according to appearances. Don't just think in your own head and draw your conclusion based on a set of physical criteria. Make the right decision. So the question is, what's the right decision? I mean, that's all I have to go by, isn't it? You know, I look at a situation, maybe I talk with a person or two, and I, I, I analyze it, and then I make a decision. But I guess according to the Master, there's something else involved in making right decisions. And uh, that's what we're going to learn about today. I'm going to give you a little example of this, okay? Uh, he's not here today, but have you ever noticed that Greg brings a Coke usually to kiddish? Have any of you wondered why does Greg bring Coke to kiddish? Like, people could draw all co- sorts of funny conclusions about that, couldn't they? And in fact, I was kind of curious at first. Well, here's here's the story. He would. He, Greg was involved with a massive exposure to anhydrous ammonia. He was driving a truck, and when he pulled the truck away that was carrying the stuff, the, uh, the hose that was pumping it in was still attached, and it blew everywhere. And he could have been killed. And it had, it had, it did seriously affect his health. And the result is, he can't ingest certain things. Now, how he can ingest coke and not fruit of the vine is beyond me, but that's the situation, right? So that is a great example of not judging according to appearances. Another one would be, uh, when a, 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 an episode of *Little House on the Prairie* that Genevieve and I watched this last week—they have all the seasons of *Little House on the Prairie* available on, the, on YouTube, and we like to watch one or two a week while we're having supper. They're just—they're such good, clean, innocent stories. But this week, Almanzo was just courting Laura, right? And uh, this thing happened where she was teaching at a new school, and he walked in after school, and there was one boy left. And, uh, she was like showing him some medical thing, and it looked like maybe they were involved with each other. So Almanzo walked in the door, they were standing right there, and he went BOOM! And he hit the guy, and the guy like flew into the back of the room, right? And then Laura was really mad because Almanzo had made a judgment call. But he did it based on appearances. He didn't judge the righteous judgment. Alright. That's, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the idea here. So, uh, Yeshua, uh, a couple of chapters later, he says much the same thing in John 8, 15. He says, You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anybody. So what we learn is, if you're a human, then your first tendency will be to judge according to the flesh. Now, the question is, what does judging according to the flesh means? When you read according to the flesh, it means based on physical criteria, right? So you're making your judgment calls based on what you see. Kind of like how Almanzo did, right? He walked in the door, he saw something, boom. <laughs> and uh, that's not what we want to do. Here's some. Here's another passage about this concept. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15, he says something interesting. He says, He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So we learn something. We can be living on, like, a physical level where we're so wrapped up in the material world. Like, materialism is huge in our culture, right? And it's so easy to get sucked into that. That's the status quo. That's the norm. But that's not being spiritual. Being spiritual is like realizing there are higher dimensions of existence. There is a greater reality. It's the reality where God lives. It's the reality where, like, there's this combat between the forces of good and evil. Um, angels function in that reality. Demons come to you from that reality to whisper lies in your ears and incite you to do dumb things. Right? That's the spiritual realm. And Paul says when you're connected with the spiritual realm through God's Spirit in you, then you are going to be, you're going to be analyzing everything that comes into your life. You're going to be judging things that people say, stuff that's suggested to you through the media, etc., uh, it may also mean that people can't figure you out. You're appraising stuff, but it may be a little hard to appraise you. Why? Because you just don't fit in the box. You just you just don't toe the party line. That is a great dynamic that we see in the life of the Master, hey? I mean, he just did not fit into people's boxes. They couldn't figure out where he was from, right? And they had a really hard time with him because they just couldn't put him in a box, They couldn't say, well, you know, he's the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and and, uh, his grandfather was a rabbi, and, you know, he went to the best rabbinical Bible college in Jerusalem, and he was ordained, and he has a certificate on the wall, and he just didn't have any of that, did he? And the result was, they had a really hard time with him. It was hard to appraise this guy by people who just judged according to the flesh, right? So, uh... We see a massive example of this in this parasha. In this parasha, we see Korah and over 250 of the national leaders of Israel, and they make a fatal decision. And they arrive at that fatal decision by basing their decision on faulty analysis of a situation. They're a great example of judging according to the flesh. I want to to point out three verses to you about that in this parasha that are a great picture of this. And uh, I think the last one's actually kind of humorous. Okay, number sixteen-three. This is what they say: Moses and Aaron, you've gone far enough. All the congregation is holy, every one of them, and you're always in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? They're saying, Moses, who do you think you are, making yourself out to be a prophet? Aaron, who do you think you are, becoming the high priest of Israel? Every one of us is holy. How can you be a, the high priest? This is what they were saying. Let me ask you, were they were they looking at that situation through spiritual eyes or were they looking at things on a physical level? They were really off. Okay. A, a couple of verses later in 16:13, it's they this is uh Dathan and Abram. They're they're not even coming to the, obeying the summons that Moses gives for meeting. And they say, "We won't come up." Isn't it enough that you, Moses, have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? But you would lord it over us also? So did you hear, did you hear their skewed perceptions on that one? Number one, they didn't realize that God brought them out of Egypt. They thought it was Moses who brought them out of Egypt. How is that for insanity? Like that is a classic case of insanity. How, how did they think Moses did all that stuff, eh? How do they think Moses like split the sea and brought a couple million people through it and then drowned the Egyptians behind them? I mean, talk about a case of selective memory, eh? And 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 then they 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 twisted things around so far that they said, yeah, Egypt is the land of milk and honey and Canaan isn't. What are you doing? What did, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Okay, can you can you can you kind of get this impression that these guys didn't have a clue about who God was and where God was in the situation? Okay, and then <laughs> there's one more example. 1641 is the best. This is all the people. This is after, like, fire miraculously comes out of nowhere and burns up these 250 dudes that presumed upon themselves to make themselves like high priests with their own censors, right? They were doing this out of their own heads. And uh, fire burns them all. And then verse 41, we read, on the next day, all the congregations of the sons of Israel. So a couple hundred thousand people here, Okay they all start grumbling against Moses and Aaron saying, you're the ones who have caused the death of Yahweh's people. Wow. Moses and Aaron were the ones, apparently, who killed all those guys with supernatural fire. I mean, wait a minute. Was that what really happened? Was that Moses and Aaron? So these are some examples of this. (laughs) Okay, here is the big question. What was the root of these people's problem? <laughs> Here's what I, th- I suggest it was. They weren't coming at it from the, uh, you know how we talked about the spiritual perspective? When you like, when you have a spirit and you're connected with the spiritual dimension and you're walking close with God, like you're doing life with God? That's the faith perspective, okay? Everybody say faith perspective that's the one way you can look at a situation the other way you can look at a situation from is over here it's when you're like stuck in your body you can't think outside of your own head all you, all you operate by is what you feel okay that's kind of like being in the flesh it's like when you do life without God's power and uh, when, when we do that we're kind of like Korah like we can come up with some really stupid stuff can't we I think we've all been there I've been there I can't believe some of the stuff that I've come up with and that I still come up with when I'm not like really tight with God, right? Well, so this was the root of their problem. They were doing life from over here, right? They were looking at a situation not with spiritual eyes. That's true. You can like back up your position with so many rational arguments and yeah, that's really true. You can even find Bible verses to support it and you can get a lot of people to agree with you. <laughs> wow. Okay, so here's here, so here are these two perspectives. Their problem was they weren't factoring God into the equation. These guys didn't want God to be a part of the picture, did they? If you were to look at their hearts, they didn't want Him to be a part of the picture. Even though these guys made a big to-do of using religious talk, did you notice that? We're all holy. Y'all always in our midst. They were they were using religious talk, weren't they? Even though they were doing that, they did not believe in God. For all intents and purposes, they had no faith whatsoever. They did not believe in the Almighty. They were practical atheists. They were. They were practical atheists. They were living like atheists. Even though they had all the religious, all the religious speech, and even though they came across as being so righteous, they had, they wanted nothing to do with the true God, did they? And you know what's scary? We can be there, like, boom. One second and I can be there. It's like this Jekyll and Hyde thing that each one of us have lurking deep inside of us, you know? Um, kay, kay, okay, okay, here, okay. Here's a question: If you're an evangelical and you know you uh, look at atheists and the atheist movement or whatever, what's one of the favorite verses that evangelicals like to use to describe atheists? Psalm 14, verse one: "The fool has said in his heart, there is no God." How many of you have heard that? You probably all heard that, right? And then you kind of like say it and then you just kind of go, yep, kind of nod smugly, right? Those, those fools, they, they, they're the ones who say in their heart there's no God and the Bible talks about them right there. That's, that's very popular, isn't it? But let me ask you, how many of us have thought at times in our life or acted like there wasn't a God? Like Korah. I have Maybe I've been the fool sometimes who has said in my heart, in terms of how I think subconsciously, you know, maybe God exists, but if he does, he's nowhere He's nowhere close to me, and he's certainly not involved in this situation. I'm going to have to take this on myself. I uh, have been a practical atheist at times in my life, and it only takes me about two seconds to get there. Uh, we also read in Psalm 10, verse 4, The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, doesn't seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And here's the question. Like, it talks about this wicked dude, right? And in the haughtiness of his constant countenance, he's not looking for God. He's not going after God. But what does that mean? It's like your outlook, right? Like, it probably we probably do well to stop and ask ourselves, have I ever had a proud outlook? Have I ever had a time in my life, maybe in the last week, Let's bring it, let's bring it close to home here. Have we ever had a time where I, uh, where I made a decision as if there wasn't a God? You know, have we ever had times when our mode of operation was such that when we had a critical decision to make, when we had to respond to something someone was saying, instead of asking God what he thought of this or involving him in the situation or just acknowledging that he's involved, we just kind of go ahead and do our own thing and act independently. It's so easy, isn't it? But you know what the Bible says? That's the wicked way. <laughs> so, why I'm saying this is because I don't think we can point fingers at atheists and say, they're so bad and I'm so good. Like, that is not the case, is it? It's like one second and we could be there. It's only the grace of God that holds us in a place of faith, that gives us the faith perspective, that makes us aware of the spiritual dimensions. I find that very humbling, personally. Um... That was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned from the book of Joshua. If there was any mistake that Joshua made in his life, he had a moment of practical atheism. Where the Gibeonites came and he acted independently. Instead of consulting with the Almighty and getting some counsel on the matter, he just went ahead and he did, he he did he acted out of his own thinking what he thought was best. And that was disastrous. That proved to be disastrous for the people of Israel for centuries. Uh, Abraham was another example. He made a couple decisions, and I'm not sure if they were the best ones. He, uh, You know, in the Philistine territory, he thought, well, surely there can't be any fear of God in the place. Maybe on a deeper level, he was thinking, you know, God can't be totally involved here. God couldn't be sovereign in this situation. And what was the, what did he do as a result? He lied. He lied about his wife. And it caused his life, wife a lot of grief, too, didn't it? So, I mean, hey, this is Abraham, like the, the superhero of our faith. This is our forefather in the faith. Even Abraham did this. <laughs> Maybe it means we're in the same boat, eh? So, we have this story of Korah, right? We have this, these facts. And uh, I can see three different conclusions that we can draw, okay? The first one you could say is, Those guys were so dumb. How could they be so dumb? That's the first response, okay? The second one is, Wow, those were those guys were really bad. God thank I'm thankful that I'm not like them. Thank you God that I'm not like Cora. <laughs> okay? That's a little bit better, but I don't think it's I don't think it's the the right conclusion either. The third the third conclusion we could draw from stories like this, when we read about the villains of ancient history, when we read about wicked rulers, when we read about people who did stupid things. This is the third conclusion we can come to. Wow. That's me. Like I'm no different than anybody else? We are all children of Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve left us a heritage of sin, really deep sin. You know, you read Romans 1, and Paul talks about how totally degenerate the human condition is. Like, we couldn't go any farther in being the most evil people that we could be. You know, it's like, I sin, and I love to sin, and... It's like I don't know. I can think of times, even like in my childhood and teens, when I did some things that were really destructive to other people. When I did stuff that was really wrong, and when I look when I look back at it, like I had no regret at all. I didn't care. I don't know if I even felt a conscience in some of those situations. And Paul says in Romans one, that's that's each of us. Thankfully, though, that that that's not where the conclusion ends, does it? It's not like we just read the word and be like, yeah, you know, wicked Herod or stupid Cora or whoever. That's me. That's not where it ends. That's where it starts. We realize, man, I'm really messed up. I need someone to come into my life and save me. I need someone to come and transform me and make me into a new person. Someone who's righteous and loves to do what's right. You know? Someone who is like offended by foul speech in the workplace. Someone who really gets his hackles up when people use God's name in vain. And uh, you know what? That's why Yeshua came. We do that in our lives. So, you know, as we as we read the scriptures and as we watch the evening news and as we read whatever, news on the internet, when we see people doing horrific things, just remember, you're no better than them. We all need a Savior. It's only the grace of God that's brought us to where we're at. And I, I pray that that will be our our, our outlook also as a congregation. We're doing some stuff that the body of Christ has lost for almost 2,000 years. Things like doing Shabbat, right? Let's just keep that humble approach in our hearts as we we move on in the things of God, as we continue to learn the Torah and uh, and return to the ancient paths. So, all that to say, I'm the villain, right? I read these stories and I just have to remember, I'm the villain. <laughs> I need him. Okay, Um I want to move on from there to talk about something really practical that the Father's been teaching me, and I i think maybe you could learn something from it too. Um, it's how do you respond when someone attacks you? Like, I, I haven't really had anyone attack me recently, in case you're wondering. But you just think about it like, Cora was a sick person, right? Like, the dudes that were on Cora's crew, they were twisted guys. And I don't know, Maybe in your extended family, you have someone who's a little messed up. Maybe you have someone who has a really twisted perception of you. Maybe you have someone who's attacked you verbally in the past or whatever. At workplace or maybe at a church or whatever, you know? I mean, hey, there are people out there like that, right? It's not like this is just in this parasa that we read about that. There's still people like that. So here's the question. What, how do you respond? How's that for like, let's let's get some really practical equipping here. What do you think? When someone does something against you, how do you respond? I think Moshe is a hero in this regard. Why don't we look at what Moses did, see what we can learn from him. Uh, Number 16, 4. Okay, verse 3, they do their spiel against Moses. Verse 4, this is what it says. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. So how do you respond when someone comes against you? Yeah, why did he fall on his face? I think maybe there are two reasons. Number one, like like John, you said, he went to God. The very first thing he went is he went to God. He didn't get dragged into the situation, right? What was the second thing? Maybe he fell on his face because he knew his own potential for getting dragged into a situation, for responding out of his flesh, for maybe he was scared. Maybe he was like, God, help me right now, or I am going to like, freak out at these guys! You know? I, I think that could have been part of it. So switching the focus onto him. Right? Getting it off of you. Man, did you notice that? If, you know, if you've ever experienced that, and I'm sure we all have at some point in our life, the first thing you want to do is take it personally, right? And it's almost like, maybe with what you're saying, Moses intentionally didn't take it personally, and he just directed the focus to him. Hey, actually, it even says that a couple of verses later, doesn't it? He said, you're not complaining against us, you're complaining against him. Oh, man. Right, you can just imagine, like, get down, take cover it. This is dangerous, what they're doing. Wow, good good point. Um. Okay, the same thing happens in the next scenario. Like, a couple hundred thousand people, they're really mad at Moses and Aaron for killing all of their heroes, all of these national leaders, right? And... Uh, and then, what does it say in the very next verse, verse forty-two? It says, "The cloud covered it, like the cloud of Yahweh's glory covered the tent." And it was like, wow, he was visibly involving himself in this situation, the Holy One Himself. And then what? what and then, um, where does it say that the? Okay, yeah. And then it says in verse forty-five, Yahweh says, "Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly, like incinerate the whole bunch of them." couple hundred thousand people. And what does it say? Then they fell on their faces. It's like, man, Moses. that was the day when Moses had dirt on his face, didn't he? I mean, he, he spent quite a bit of face time that day, didn't he? It was like, I, I really admire that. Wow, what a great example, hey? So anyway, that is something I learned from that. Um, I want to I share with you three other things that you can do based on Scripture and situations like that. Number one, like physically, get on your face. Physically get on your face. And just stay there for a while. Maybe even a long while, as long as you need to. And uh, here, here, here are a couple more things you can do. Yeshua said, you know, when someone curses you, don't curse him back. Instead of that, like, re- write some nasty things about him on Facebook. <laughs> just kidding. He said, if someone curses you, like, turn around and bless him to his face. You know? If someone, like, takes a shot at you and says something mean, say something positive in response. Because that's the point where you don't get dragged down to their level and you win. It's actually, it's almost selfish, right? But strategically, that's very smart. Then you win. Um, likewise, Yeshua said, if someone's persecuting you, pray for them. Right? So, what can we pray? Here, here are a couple things. When, 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 when these Roman soldiers were pounding the nails through the master's wrists, have you ever been to the dentist? Have you ever, like, had them miss and hit a, like, a nerve in your tooth? Have you ever wanted to, like, reach up and, like, grab the dentist around the throat and, like, throw him across the room because he's gonna kill you? <laughs> like, okay, if you've experienced that, then you know what pain is, right? Pain through nerves. Some of the biggest nerves in your body go through your wrists, okay? When those nails were going through the, the, like, the wrists, Yeshua was probably screaming. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. So that's that's the first thing we can do. What can we pray? We can pray, Father, please forgive that person. And here's the thing. Is it possible to pray that God will forgive somebody if you don't want to forgive them? I don't think it is. So when you pray that God will forgive them, you're going to find yourself letting go of the situation too. That's really smart. And remember the the second half of that they don't know what they're doing. I'm going to, I'm going to give you an example. Who think of your your best friend, someone who's very near and dear to your heart, someone that you would die for, someone that you know would just take a bullet for you, okay? Someone like that. Now let's say, now think of yourself when you're let's say in your 70s, let's say 70s and that person develops Alzheimer's disease and they just they just lose their sanity. Like they lose every inch of their sanity and you go visit them one day at their house and you're sitting down in the kitchen, and they grab a kitchen knife, and they try and kill you. Okay? Just think of that. Now, would you take that personally? It would probably hurt. You'd probably feel really sad that your friend is in that condition. But what would you remember? You'd remember, they don't know what they're doing. You would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, right? Right? Here's the thing: almost every single person on planet Earth has spiritual Alzheimer's to some degree. Most of us are totally out of touch with reality. Most of us are insane, but we walk around with like degrees, and we walk around with fancy clothes, and we walk around with titles in front of our names, and we hide the fact, and nobody knows that we're insane. And then we all pat, our, pat each other in the back, and we all agree that we're right, and we rationalize it, right? We rationalize our insanity, like the world is is, is like that. that full of people like that, right? So next time someone does something to you that hurts you or you don't think is right, just remind yourself that that person may not have a clue what they're doing. They might be totally out of touch with reality. Feel bad for that person. Pray for that person. I also think that he brings people into our lives and he brings conflict into our lives. He sends crises our way to humble us and sometimes to reflect to us what we really look like, hey? That's what I've heard and that's what I've experienced. So hopefully that's something practical we can get from this parasha. There is one more thing that we can pray. In 1 John 5.16, this is what he says. If you see a brother committing a sin that doesn't result in death, you should ask and God will give life to that person who's committing sin that doesn't end in death. There is a sin that ends in death. I don't say that you should pray for that. All right? So when we see, uh, let's say we have a conflict in our lives. Let's say we have a problem. Let's say we see someone doing something really stupid. Okay? What do you do? What's the best thing to pray? The best thing to pray, according to our sage John, is God, please bring that person to life. Please give that person life, Father. You know, most times if there's relational tension, there's some area in somebody's heart that's died. There's, there's some area where that person has been disconnected from that warmth. And the best thing you can do is, Father, breathe your life into this, this, this brother, this sister of mine. Father, um, bring, bring the warmth of your love to the, this person's heart. If there are areas that have died, that have become cold. We've all faced pain in our lives. We've all faced disillusionment and, and it's a struggle to stay alive in our, in our hearts, isn't it? So that's something we can pray. So that's, that's what we learned from this. Um, there is another level to this, and this is something that you may do after prayer. In 1628, we see that Moses does does state the facts. He does clarify the situation. He says, uh, By this you'll know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. So he does state in response to their, you know, their lies, this is not my doing. And the Hebrew says, this isn't from my heart. Right? So there is a place for stating the facts. But we see that Moses did that after spending some time with his face in the dirt. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to talk about a messianic theme from this parasha. Moses is a prototype of the Messiah, the Messiah. That means dynamics in Moses' life are going to be prophetic of the Messiah's life, right? Moses was misunderstood. Moses was slandered. Moses was not received by the people of Israel. Do you think that may say something about the Messiah? Yeah... Yeah, I think, I think, I think Orthodox Judaism would do well to take that to heart also. Messiah isn't necessarily going to be a superhero. He may be rejected by the majority. He may be like Moses. So, here's the question. What was it that vindicated Moses? Because that's going to be a picture of what vindicates Messiah to the Jewish people and to the world. Could we have a look at that? Chapter 16, verse 19 says this. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the congregation. Then uh, further on in 1642 it says, It came about however when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tent of meeting and look, the cloud covered it and the glory of Yahweh appeared. So what was the point where Moses was vindicated? When it was shown that he was God's favorite. That God's favor was on this man. That the thing, the actions that he was taking were ratified by the Almighty. that they, That he was sent on a mission to do these things. It was when the glory appeared, wasn't it? And let me ask you, is Yeshua misunderstood in this world? Is he misunderstood by the Jewish people? Yes, to a very large degree. When is he going to be vindicated? Yes, that's right. When the glory appears. And I, I I think there could be two tiers to this. Uh tier two, the final is going to be when he comes back in what? The glory of his father. I think when like he comes hurtling through the atmosphere from outer space or however it's going to look, and when he like does his victory lap around planet Earth and everybody sees, I'm gonna call him our rabbi hurtling through the skies in like fiery glory. An earth-shaking power? Do you think there's anybody who's going to say, yeah, you know, Jesus, you know, God didn't send Jesus. I don't have to take Jesus seriously. Like, think again, right? Everybody's going to be thinking again at that point. So it's going to be the glory of the Father that ultimately vindicates the Son and His reputation, which has been slandered to a great degree. Uh, between now and then, I don't know. You see His name, His reputation, you think there's anything we can do to maybe help really uh, polish that, to bring honor to his name? I think so. It's really interesting to read John 17 and realize that all of these themes, they have this connexus. Like they, they come together in this point. And, uh, and it, it's about here and now. In uh, John 17, verse 22, this is what Yeshua says. And listen for all these themes, okay? Father, the glory you gave me, I gave to them. So there's the glory theme. Why? That they may be one. That they may be echad. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. Can you hear it? The glory vindicates Yeshua's reputation. How does the world know that God sent the Messiah? When we are one as a people. What do, you, what do you think the chance is that the Father is going to answer Yeshua's prayer before this thing is over? And He is going to like bring such a supernatural level of unity to the body. It's very high. And it happens when His glory comes. So let's continue to persevere, uh, come into His glory, and uh, let Him make us one in His way. And I don't think that's going to look... Orga- it may not happen organizationally. It may not happen with some... I don't want I don't want to like go into all the possible scenarios. But I, I do believe that it is going to happen by the power of God. And everyone's gonna say that was his doing. And it is it is wondrous in our eyes. There is a second way that Moses was vindicated, and Aaron in this case, that is prophetic of Messiah. Remember the the, the staffs? They're like uh nice heavy-duty sticks, right? They would use them to walk around with. Uh if someone attacked them, they would like. Give them a good swipe over the head with the staff or whatever. This is a very practical instrument. Well, they put them in the tabernacle overnight. And what happened in the morning? It says Aaron's rod, like, it grew leaves, it grew flowers, and it even produced ripe almonds. They could, like, pick the things off and eat them, eh? So, to illustrate that, I brought something for you guys. Well, I explained to you how this applies on a practical way. See, I brought a cool little little ark, and it has almonds in it. (laughs) So I'll pass it around and you can all have one or two. <laughs> Just to imagine, right? So, we can learn two things from this almond incident, the supernatural almonds. Um, what do almonds symbolize in the Hebrew language? The word almond is the same word for staying alert. Did you know that? So when Yeshua is saying, be alert, in Hebrew, like, you know, he says, stay awake, and, uh, and when he's talking about the end of days, he's saying, almond, He's saying almond, basically. <laughs> and you may have noticed that in Jeremiah chapter 1. I remember I had a buddy when I was like 16, and he was like, yeah, I was reading through Jeremiah, and I just don't understand this. And he he read this, this thing where Jeremiah had his first vision, and Yahweh was like, uh, Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah is like, I see a, an almond stick. You remember that? And Yahweh said, that, "That's that's right, because I'm watching over my word to perform it. And my buddy and I were like, what? What does an almond stick have to do with God watching over his word to perform it? Like, I don't get something here, right? Well, here's here's the key to understanding that. An almond, almonds mean like you're watching, watchfulness, right? I'm watching over my word alertly to perform it. Isn't that cool that the Almighty speaks parabolically like that? It's like, that is not the way we speak, is it? An almond tree and what it represents about me, you know? But, uh, so that's what we learn about that. Yeah. The almonds do look like eyes. I'm going to stick some almonds in my eyes next time. Maybe that's it. That's cool. Okay. So what can we learn about that? Yeshua had a point where he physically died, where he went unconscious, and it would have been permanent if it was not for the power of God. Correct? But God raised him from the dead. He brought him back to life. He, re- he resumed consciousness. And that's pictured by the almond. The almond is a picture of resurrection. And even so, and this I mean, this is a no-brainer, right? Yeshua was proven the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Paul states that explicitly in the beginning of his letter to the congregation in Rome. So, that's a very cool aspect of how the almond points to Yeshua. But there's another practical aspect. And I want to share that with you. I believe that God has called each one of us in this room to be a leader in His kingdom. And that leadership isn't going to look like what the world defines as leadership. But each of us have a mission to make disciples, don't we? We are in a mission to bring people to the Master. Uh, in Matthew 5, Yeshua says, If you want to be great in the kingdom, then here's what you do. Do God's commandments. You know the commandments in the Torah? Do that stuff. And uh, influence other people to do it too. Like teach them how to also. That's the path to greatness in the kingdom. And that does involve humility. So each one of us in this room are called to that type of leadership. And uh, something else we learn about that is true kingdom leadership is what is it going to produce in people? Is it going to make them drowsy? Is it going to induce a spiritual dullness on them? Um, you know, if a pastor is really fulfilling his commission from God, is it going to make his people go home and not see God for themselves? Blah, blah, blah. No! What we learn about the almond tree is the almond is a picture of each one of us. Like in our in our interactions with other people. For those of us who teach or speak publicly or even share in the congregation, the result of that should be the same as the result of Aaron's staff. Almonds. What are almonds? Alertness. Spiritual awareness. Waking up. That's that's a picture of the Holy Spirit when it's functional in our lives. You will wake the people up in your life when you are functioning in the Holy Spirit. You'll you'll be asking questions that make them think, that get them wondering, that make their minds more alert. Did you notice that in the life of the master? Like, he really got people thinking. He brought them to a pinpoint of mental alertness. He'd tell a story and then he'd walk away. And he'd leave them scratching their heads and wondering, what was he talking about? Let's try and figure this thing out. So that's that's something that we learn on a practical level about that. I want to share one more thing from the Torah. This is very short, and it's actually a very short exercise that will help illustrate a point. Moses and Aaron, they had a massive vision of the Creator. Uh, in that time, you didn't have this concept of the God of heaven and earth, like the really big God who generated everything. Uh, the concept of God usually was like, yeah, well, I have like 200 gods, and I have a God that helps me uh, play soccer really well, and I have another God that helps me make a lot of money, and uh, here's my closet where I have them all, and I go and, you know, when I'm going to do something, I pray to this God that will help me with that, Right? Like you had collections of gods, and then you also had bigger gods. Some of them had really huge tummies because they were idols, and they were really weird stuff, right? But the idea was like local deities. So like uh, Moab, right? Who is their who is their local deity? Who's the national god of Moab? Moloch. That's correct. So this was their god, and Moloch, like he was, he reigned supreme, but only in Moab. Okay, that was kind of the idea with all of these local deities. But Moses and Aaron. They have this vision of a God who is so much bigger than that—the one true God who generated the universe through His spoken word, and who brought people like Abraham into covenant relationship with Himself. Wow! Who can actually be known personally, and uh, we we just get a we get a feel for that in uh, number sixteen twenty-two. And in order to understand what they see here, I want you to take a second, just stop for a second, and take a really deep breath. Okay. And just remember that that's something that you do your whole life. That is something that everybody in Saskatchewan does their whole lives. That's something that every deer and every coyote and every, do ants breathe? And every ant in the, in the whole country, they do their whole lives on whole, all of planet earth, okay? And with that in mind, you're going to understand this vision of the Almighty here in number 1622. Moses and Aaron said, they're praying. And it says, but they fell on their faces and they said, O oh God, God of the breath of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? And uh, the NASB renders this word for breath as spirits. The word is ruach. Everybody say ruach. ruach. And it can mean wind. We have a lot of ruach here in Saskatchewan. It's a windy province. It can mean breath. And it can also mean Spirit. But in this case, I believe that breath is the best translation. He is God, i.e. the creator and the original source of everybody's breath. So every single person that you encounter, you have something in common with that person. You owe every single breath to the creator. And he doesn't just like kind of hand you a card at the beginning of your life that has all of your breath like written out on it and you cash in your card every morning and get your daily breath, right? He gives you every breath as you're breathing. Wow, hey? That's, that's, that's the vision of our Creator. Like how, how massive He is. And how intimately He involved in our lives He is. So next time, like, maybe you're just forgetting about the Almighty, because that can happen really fast. Just stop and take a breath. And remember that breath was from Him. And He's closer than what you think. There's a song that says He's closer than our breath. And that's true. Okay, I just want to give you, like, a three to five minute overview of the Yohanan passage, the John passage, and then we'll finish. Um, I'm sure you've noticed as a congregation that there are certain topics that we hit on more regularly than other ones. There's a reason for that. It's because uh, there are some things that we just never learned growing up. And those are the things that I really want to equip you with. That's the information that I really want to give you. It's not that some of those other themes aren't important, that maybe we talk about more often in a standard, you know, evangelical or charismatic group or whatever. But uh, I just want to give you, excuse me, some of that stuff that you've never gotten. So I'm just going to give you a couple of the understandings in the John passage that uh, you only get when you look at it in its original Jewish context. When you look at Jesus as a very Jewish Jesus. Um, one is in John chapter nine, verse seven. This blind guy, what does he have to do to see? He has to go to this pool called Siloam and uh, wash his eyes. And he goes there because Yeshua sent him there. It's kind of cool. Yeshua sends this blind guy to a pool called Sent. In Hebrew, it's Shiloach. Can we all say Shiloach? Shiloach. Shiloach. And uh, that pool, they've actually dug it out archaeologically and you can go there and there's still water in it. Isn't that where you were immersed, Colin? That's where Colin was baptized. It was in the pool of Shiloach in Jerusalem. Very cool. So what, what do we learn about that on a practical lesson? Every single world, one of us come into this world spiritually blind. Right? And we need Messiah to open our eyes. How does he do that? I can see two things that we can learn from that, this about how he does it. Number one, when we accept that he has been sent by God, when we accept his authority in our lives, when we read his teachings and we say, that's serious, I'm gonna make this my own, I'm gonna do this stuff, then he, we will, we will be healed. And we'll get spiritual vision from that experience. Right? The second thing we can learn, and this applies to the body of Messiah, is Shiloach, the word for sent, is also the root for apostle. So that tells us that if there is a lack of vision in the body of Messiah, God will use the apostolic anointing in people who function in that role to bring that vision to the body of Messiah. And He has been doing that for the last five or six decades specifically. And we're just going to cheer him on as he continues to do that. So that's something that we value as a congregation. We value understanding what the apostolic mission is, what that looks like, how, how we as a group can support that and be a part of that. And the result will be spiritual vision. Not only for ourselves, but for the body of Messiah here in Prince Albert. That's the first thing that we learn. In a 916, we learn something that will blow one of our prejudices out of the water. Uh, there's this idea out there that the Jews rejected Jesus, right? I mean, I hear it all the time. As a Hebrew teacher, I've had hundreds of people in my Hebrew classes, and I like to explain how the Torah, down to the very letter, points to Messiah. And my students, this is like so classic. The response is, man, how could the Jews have read the Torah their whole lives and then not seen Jesus in this and rejected Jesus? And my response is, they did it! Who was it who believed in Yeshua for the first decade or two? It was only Jewish people. There were lots of Jewish people who accepted Yeshua, who did believe in Him. Yes, there was a messed up religious leadership in Jerusalem that had like control of the place, and they did re- reject Him, but even some of them didn't. Look at Nicodemus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Look at... Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Ramatana, he was another one, right? So all that to say, we can't just paint this broad stroke and say, yeah, the Jews, they rejected Jesus, and we Gentiles, we accepted him. Sorry, it just doesn't work that way. And uh, we, we maybe we could say, well, you know, that may be true, but those Pharisees, they were the really bad dudes in the story. They were so dumb. They just saw Messiah right there, and they just rejected him. We could say that. They all rejected him. But actually, if you read 9 verse 16, you read, Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man isn't from God, because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Oh, see, there it is. The Pharisees rejected Jesus. I told ya, But you didn't read the rest of the verse. Others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So we see that. Even in the Pharisaic party, there were believers in Messiah. So we could just as, we could just as easily say, Yeah, the Gentiles rejected Jesus, as we could say the Jews rejected Jesus. You know, it cuts on both ways. So, let's remember that. I'll equip you with that. If you bump into somebody who has this idea in their heads, you can maybe you can help them with that now. Um, 9.29, they say, their problem with Yeshua was they didn't know where he was from. We already covered that, didn't we? Um, People want to stick people in a box. They want to be able to measure you by your academic credentials. And then it doesn't matter if God sends you or not. As long as you have the academic credentials, you're good to go. And I've encountered that. I don't have academic credentials. I have studied intensely. I have sat at the feet of the master. I have gone through training and I'm going through training, but I don't have a certificate to show you to prove that I'm a trustworthy individual. Thank you for loving me anyway. (laughs) <laughs> okay, uh, 10 verse 10, the devil gets a rab- bad rap on this one. Yeshua says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We say, well, that's the devil, right? All of us think that's the devil. The devil is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Okay, the devil is the ultimate thief. He does want to steal and kill and destroy. It's true. But if you read the, pe- the context of this, Yeshua is not talking about the devil in person here. Do you know who he's talking about? Mm -hmm. the religious leaders who were against him. Look at verse 8. He says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear them. So in other words, the people who were in religious leadership, who preceded Yeshua, who had this power grab in Jerusalem, they were thieves. They came. the, The only thing they were doing in national Israel was they were stealing from the people. They were killing the people spiritually. They were destroying the country. And they were doing it in the name of holding the country together by selling out to Rome to try and prevent uh, a war. So anyway, I just wanted to give you that understanding. It's a bigger one. Uh, it relates not only to religious leadership in Yeshua's time, it relates to religious leadership today in every religion. It relates to teachers, false or true teachers. So we can remember that, the original context for it. You know how I've been talking about how the Torah technically... It's the five books of Moses, the foundational books of Scripture, but the Torah is a Hebrew word that means what? Teaching and instruction. That's correct. So the Torah, the whole Bible constitutes God's Torah. That, that is correct, isn't it? And we actually, we have two texts in the, the, the B'rit Chodesha, the New Testament, that corroborate this idea. One of them is in this. Yeshua in John 10.34 says, Isn't it written in your law, your Torah? I've said your God's. And then he quotes the Psalms there. So what we see is that the Psalms are part of God's Torah also. Therefore, we can also draw the conclusion that just like the Law and the Prophets and the Writings, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, that's God's Torah. The Brit Chodesha, the the New Testament, is also Torah, isn't it? So the whole book. Actually, I I know of a, a group of believers like us, their Hebrew roots, their Messianic types, they call themselves whole Bible Christians. Because they recognize the whole Bible is God's Torah, God's practical instruction for our lives. So we are whole Bible Christians. (laughs) And, uh, I wanna, I wanna finish with giving you, leaving you with a picture of Yeshua. It is a trustworthy statement and deserving of full acceptance that Yeshua the Messiah is the same yesterday and today and forever. Is that true? Yes. May we also say therefore that it's a trustworthy statement and deserving the full acceptance that what Yeshua did is what Yeshua is going to do. That what Yeshua did as a human in the flesh when he walked the dusty roads of Galilee, when he went to the synagogue on Shabbat, when he read the Torah, when he did the stuff God said in the Torah, is the same stuff that he's going to be doing when he returns in glory, when he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, when he brings God's kingdom in its fullness to planet Earth, and when he regathers the exiles back to the land of Israel, and where he teaches us the word of God in Israel for a thousand years, according to Revelation 19-22, to according to Ezekiel 40-48, to I think so. I think it's safe to say that. So, with that understanding that what he did is what he's going to be doing when he comes back, let's look at something he did in John chapter 10. This is kind of fun. Yes? And he said in John chapter 14, 12, he said, And things I do, you will be greater than me. Wow. Amen. So, we're supposed to be doing that, now. Great right on. So, it's not just him then? Wow! Right on. Let's look. At, I want to point out one thing that Yeshua did. This is cool. John ten twenty two. It says that Yeshua was up in Jerusalem in the middle of winter. Now, if you travel on foot, you don't want to go for like a couple days uh, journey up to Jerusalem in the winter because it's the rainy season and it's really cold when you're walking all day in the rain. You just don't do that, right? But Yeshua was in Jerusalem during the winter, and the temple. Why was he there? Well, it says that he was there for a festival, the festival of dedication. What is the Feast of Dedication? What's the Hebrew word for that? Hanukkah, that's correct. Yeshua celebrated Hanukkah. In fact, he was so into Hanukkah, that he didn't just stay home and do a little thing at home. He walked a couple days all the way from the Galileo to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah. That means he was really into Hanukkah. And he must have also loved the temple. Because you don't walk a couple days straight to get to the temple if you don't like being at the temple. So let's remember that. Yeshua celebrated Hanukkah. Therefore, when he comes back as a Jewish Messiah, maybe he'll still be celebrating Hanukkah. Maybe we'll be doing Hanukkah in the kingdom. Interesting thought, hey? Maybe he'll continue to love the temple in the thousand-year reign of Christ also when he rules as king from Jerusalem. So I wanted to leave you with that picture of Messiah. Wow! Isn't it going to be fun doing Hanukkah this year? I can hardly wait for winter! Just joking. But, uh, (laughs) 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 But it will be fun to do Hanukkah, won't it? Okay, let's start planning ahead to do Hanukkah and to do all the festivals that our Messiah did. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.